This week's podcast is the first of several I'll devote in the months ahead to sport in the 1970s. It was an age conspicuously different to our own. In some sports, like cricket and rugby union, an amateur dispensation prevailed. Football, although professional, was, as we shall see, still trying to wrap its collective mind around epochal issues like advertising on shirts. The 1970s were more violent, more politicized, less televised, less legislated, less policed. The first televised Football World Cup, for example, was only in 1970. A less conformist age, it was also the age of great characters, ranging from George Best to Muhammad Ali to Pele to Ili Nastasi, the tennis player, and the great West Indian cricket captain, Clive Lloyd. Later on, we'll take a good look at one of these characters, a maverick Northern Ireland footballer called Derek Dugan. In 1973, Dugan wrote a letter to his country's fans, asking them to come and support them because they couldn't play at Windsor Park in Belfast because of the troubles in Northern Ireland. Such were the times. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. For 10 blissful days, the 1972 Munich Olympics was christened the Serene Olympics or the Cheerful Games by the world's media. Olympic architects had designed the main Olympic stadium to resemble a big circus tent and the tone was one of fun and festivity. Policemen wore specially designed pastel blue uniforms. They were all unarmed, holding only walkie-talkies. Hostesses were in similarly calming pale blue. All the signs in the Olympic village were in subtle shades, pastel greens, quiet yellows. The purpose of the big top tent and the muted colours was to distance the Munich Olympics as far as possible from Germany's shameful past in general and the Holocaust in particular. Under Hitler, martial colours like red and black were dominant. The Munich Olympics thought the organizing committee would provide an opportunity for a definitive break with that past. Security at the Olympics was intentionally low-key and unobtrusive. Some went even further, criticizing it as lax. No one wanted to be reminded of the jackboot heel of the state or the atrocities perpetrated by the Waffen-SS during the Second World War. Neither did they want to be reminded of the previous Olympics hosted by Germany at Berlin in 1936, which Hitler used as a prolonged exercise in master race theatrics. The past, however, is not consigned to irrelevance by acts of collective will and ideological gerrymandering. The past gurgles into the present in unforeseen ways. Despite warnings that the Munich Olympic Village might be vulnerable to attack, the organizers were incapable of hearing these warnings. They chose not to hear a suggestion by a German forensic psychologist ahead of the Games, for example, that athletes should be housed according to their preferred sport rather than as national entities. All this leads one to conclude that the organizers were, in a manner of speaking, functionally deaf. Ignoring intelligence directives, 
they preferred instead to focus on the optics of the new West Germany, liberated from her Nazi past by the use of pastel shades. On the 11th day, the unthinkable happened. Shortly before 5 a.m., eight members of the Palestinian Black September group, some wearing balaclavas, others scarves, with faces blackened, some disguised as refuse collection men, scaled the Olympic village's perimeter fence. Armed with submachine guns and hand grenades, they made for the third floor of so-called Building 31, where the Israeli team were living for the duration of the games. Some members of the Israeli team were Jews from Europe who had settled recently in Israel. Others were either Holocaust survivors or relatives of Holocaust survivors. For many in the Israeli team, it was an act of singular courage to be in Munich at all. Having reached the third floor, the eight members of Black September stormed into the Israeli athletes' rooms and held them hostage. Some woke up with a gun to the head. An Israeli coach who tried to stop them was shot dead. Later, it emerged that another member of the Israeli delegation was shot dead during the course of the hostage drama. The Munich Olympics were serene no more. Much of this was captured by an American Broadcast Corporation camera trained on Building 31 from their broadcast headquarters just outside the village. For 16 hours, ABC showed the unfolding siege live, as did tens of other stations from around the world. Occasionally, there was a flurry of action. The masked or partly disguised gunmen, some of them in brightly colored tracksuits, could be seen moving about in the rooms. At one point, they threatened to kill one Israeli hostage an hour, although this threat never transpired. West German negotiators were seen entering and leaving the building. Not only did the world remember the Nazi pageantry of the Berlin Olympics, and not only did the Israeli team in Munich remember the Holocaust, some Black September members had long memories too. They remembered that, in the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, the Israeli Defense Force had expelled the members of two Palestinian Christian villages, Ikrit and Biram, formed as a result of the United Nations 1947 partition plan. The memories of the expulsion lived on, so they called their hostage-taking operation Ikrit and Biram. According to an excellent article by Michael Sokolov in the New York Times, at one point a piece of paper floated poetically down from a third-floor balcony. Here was a list of the Palestinians' demands. We will get to the substance of these demands in a minute, but we do well to remember that memories were long on both sides. Black September wanted the release of 234 Palestinian prisoners from Israeli jails. They also wanted an aeroplane to fly them and their hostages to Cairo. Finally, they demanded that the West German authorities release Andreas Bader and Ulrike Meinhof, the founders of the Bader-Meinhof gang, from a West German prison. The ABC anchor that day was Jim Mackay. Mackay had started out life as a police reporter at the Baltimore Evening Sun and was well-schooled in the basic verities of print journalism. Mackay, who was 50 at the time, hosted ABC's Wired World of Sport, a miscellaneous concoction of the mainstream in sport 
as well as the weird and wonderful, including arm wrestling, barrel jumping, cliff diving, and now hostage negotiations. With its blend of high and low, the show was hugely popular, but the unfolding crisis in Munich required a different skill set. Here Mackay was required to be calm, accurate, and, if at all possible, unemotional. He also needed great stamina. While events in the games continued less than 500 meters away, the hostage crisis unfolded slowly through all of the 11th Olympic day and well into that night. Mackay was required to have the verbal accuracy of an attorney, the objective distance of a judge, and the unwavering concentration of an airline pilot. Mackay's opening remarks, as recorded by the New York Times over 30 years later, show him in fine fettle, the extract which follows demonstrating an already impressive command of the details of the situation. Quote, The piece of what has been called the Serene Olympics was shattered just before dawn this morning at about five o'clock when Arab terrorists, armed with submachine guns, faces blackened, a couple of them disguised as guards or as trash men in the Olympic village, climbed the fence, went to the headquarters of the Israeli team and immediately killed one man, Moshe Weinberg, a coach. Two shots in the head, one in the stomach. The hours after Mackay's pithy opening remarks were long ones. Back home, six, seven, eight and nine time zones in America, people were waking up to the realities of the situation. East of West Germany, in Israel and Palestine, viewers were similarly transfixed. Another ABC reporter, Peter Jennings, seconded to Munich by the station from his usual job as their Middle East correspondent, was inside the athlete's village, providing reports from there. Mackay spoke to Jennings regularly. He also spoke with those, according to the New York Times, lucky enough to escape the Black September invasion in Building 31. One of them was an Israeli weightlifting coach. He admitted that while he did not believe in giving in to terrorists, he also wanted to see his friends escape from their ordeal alive. The German authorities handled the situation with very un-German authority. Late in the afternoon, Mackay reported that a deadline laid down by the authorities was approaching, and a possible storming of the building was imminent. The appointed hour came and went. The storming up to the third floor of Building 31 never materialized. Instead, the German authorities allowed the Palestinians and their captives access to a helicopter, which flew them all to a military airfield on the outskirts of Munich. There, the German police were hoping to ambush the Palestinians as they waited for their requested aeroplane to fly them to Cairo. The onward flight never happened. While the Palestinians were waiting with their Israeli hostages in a helicopter on the tarmac, the Germans attempted to storm them. The raid was ill-conceived and unsuccessful. A grenade blew up in the helicopter. All the Israeli hostages, five of the Palestinians, and a West German policeman were killed. In the aftermath of the crossfire and the grenade detonation, the three surviving members of Black September were arrested. A month later, they were released as part of a hostage exchange with a hijacked Lufthansa airliner, Flight 615, on its way from Damascus in Syria 
to Frankfurt, the three members of Black September were handed over to their comrades at Zagreb Airport in what was then Yugoslavia, while Flight 615 deviated from its original course to land in Tripoli, Libya, where all those on board were freed. There were no fatalities. The Munich massacre was not only tragic, it was the first recorded instance of so-called terrorism being captured live on television to a worldwide audience of millions. The Munich Olympics was the first games many saw on color television. There were twice as many reporters at the games as there had been in Mexico City four years previously. Due to the ubiquity of the cameras and the proximity of events in Building 31 to them, the Black September members were able to see the position of snipers taking up their posts and adjust their behavior accordingly. They said later that possible attacks on the Vatican or the White House paled by significance with what they knew they'd be able to achieve at the athletes' village in Munich. They were live on prime-time television. Their act would be seen by millions around the world, sympathetic to their cause. Lacking experience of such things, the television crews and the reporters on the ground inadvertently colluded with them. For a time, so too did the stations themselves. Later they realized they weren't only passive recorders of what was unfolding, but active participants in the spectacle. Some stations decided not to broadcast footage of the snipers in the knowledge that their images were being watched by Black September members on television sets inside Building 31. The early 1970s weren't only dominated by actual violence, but, when it came to sporting events, were shadowed by the threat of possible violence. In places as far removed as apartheid South Africa and trouble-infested Northern Ireland, violence was a part of the fabric of everyday life. Between February 1972 and April 1975, for example, Northern Ireland's footballers played all their home matches ordinarily scheduled for Windsor Park in Belfast, away from home. This was because visiting teams were increasingly reluctant to travel to Belfast, which was seen as a violent and dangerous place. The Northern Irish Football Association was also concerned that matches in Belfast would inflame sectarian tensions and possibly become a magnet for Irish Republican Army violence. Windsor Park was a no-go. In an article in the fanzine When Saturday Comes, the journalist Dave Miller, who was a youngster at the time, gives a muscular, on-the-ground view. Quote, Belfast has seldom had a good image, but the 1970s marked a new low in its appeal to visitors. Bombings, shootings, mass murder, religious bigotry, and political fanaticism convinced millions to put Belfast somewhere behind hell on their must-visit itinerary. Hard-living, devil-worshipping rockers politely declined the chance to tour, while protest singers decided that the best place to voice their opinions was from a distance. In January 1972, a British paratrooper regiment had opened fire on a group of peaceful protesters demonstrating against internment without trial 
in the predominantly Catholic bogside area of Derry in Northern Ireland. The massacre, in which 13 died and one protester died several months later from injuries sustained in the shooting, came to be known as Bloody Sunday, or the Bogside Massacre. Bloody Sunday polarised people and made them fearful. The Northern Ireland Football Association looked at the unfolding situation, weighed up their options, and considered it prudent to forgo home advantage and play home matches away. The English mainland was their preferred choice, but during the three-year-long period, Northern Ireland even played one of her home matches in the British Home Nations Championship in Glasgow against Scotland. It was a serious and frightening time, and sport was not immune from political violence, crowd misbehaviour, or social contagion. The latter stages of rugby's Five Nations Championship in 1972, for example, were never completed because Ireland's home matches at Dublin's Lansdowne Road were never played. As a result of the Bogside Massacre, Wales and Scotland refused to travel to Dublin and they and the Irish couldn't agree upon a mutually satisfactory alternative venue. As a result, the championship remained incomplete for the first and only time in its history, with England and France playing all four of their fixtures Wales and Scotland playing three of theirs, and the Irish only playing two of their four scheduled games. In parallel, the first of the home games played away from home by Northern Ireland's footballers started against Spain at Hull City's Booth Ferry Park, a ground incidentally which no longer exists, in a European Championship qualifier in February 1972. The one-all draw was a decent result against a team coached by Barcelona's former Hungarian star Ladislao Kubala, but sacrificing home advantage clearly wasn't without its problems. Some even wondered if Northern Ireland was going to carry on playing international football at all. The players became perturbed. Attendances at home games away in England were pitifully low. Northern Ireland had clearly struggled to find a home away from home. In March 1973, the Wolves and Northern Ireland striker Derek Dugan, who was born in Belfast, wrote an unusual begging letter to fans ahead of Northern Ireland's World Cup qualifier against Portugal. Northern Ireland was scheduled to play at Highfield Road, normally Coventry City's home ground and Dugan, otherwise known as the Doog, was at pains to point out in his letter that Northern Ireland needed all the help they could get. Quote, we want to recreate the atmosphere of Belfast's Windsor Park at Highfield Road, wrote Dugan, who played 43 games for Northern Ireland and played in the 1958 World Cup as a 20-year-old. Please come along and support us. Not only did Northern Ireland play at Boothbury Park and Highfield Road in the period, they played in London at Fulham's Craven Cottage and at Hillsborough Stadium, Sheffield Wednesday's ground. They also played home matches in Liverpool. The last of their away home games was played in Glasgow in May 1974, and by the following year, with sectarian tension relaxing, the Northern Irish FA were thrilled when Yugoslavia considered it safe to visit Windsor Park. Although Northern Ireland played against Yugoslavia without talisman George Best, 
team's return home after three seasons on the road was a joyful celebration. The match was a 1976 European Nations Group C qualifier, and, before a packed house, the Yugoslavs were fated as heroes. Videos of the match show Northern Ireland players in their green tracksuit tops forming a tunnel before the slightly embarrassed Yugoslavs are clapped on. The Northern Ireland team that spring evening was the usual confection of stars, goalkeeper Pat Jennings, almost stars, Martin O'Neill, and still reaching for the stars like Tommy Jackson, Chris Nickel, and Derek Spence, a journeyman who played for Berry, Oldham Athletic, Southend United, and Blackpool. A dominant display by the hosts meant that they ran out 1-0 winners, thanks to a headed Brian Hamilton goal. Afterwards, the Yugoslavs, according to Miller, vanished pretty smartly, but on the stands it was all relief and celebration. International football had returned to Belfast. For once, it was an occasion to be happy. Being at home, even though home was Belfast, was way better than being at home on the road. International sport was less stage-managed and choreographed in the 1970s. Stadiums were generally more terraces than all-seater. Windsor Park, for example, was surrounded by an athletics track, and security around sporting events hadn't become the slick industry we know it as today. The nexus between money and sport was in its infancy. Few know, for example, that the Federation of International Football Associations, better known as FIFA, was so skint ahead of the 1978 World Cup in Argentina that the entire tournament was bankrolled by Adidas. It was only after the Adidas higher-ups suggested to FIFA officials that they were sitting on a potential gold mine in the form of their World Cup and other broadcast rights that FIFA began to unbundle those rights. The sale of such rights ushered in a gold rush. Some might go further and suggest it also solidified what was to become an endemic culture of corruption in the corridors of international football power. Dugan himself encountered the stuffiness of the administrators when, post-retirement, he became player-manager at semi-professional Kettering Town. Kettering, who played in the Southern League, were always skint. Their players had other jobs and included bank clerks, accountants and even a carpenter. Dugan's view was that local business could advertise on the Kettering Town shirts, but that led to conflict with the Football Association. Over their dead body were Kettering tires rolling onto the sacred ground of a pristine shirt. The Duke was neither an outlier nor particularly visionary here. Most other clubs also wanted advertisers to be able to use football shirts to help sell their wares, but he was comparatively outspoken. And he had his authority as a former player of distinction to fall back upon. As a young player at Aston Villa in 1964, he had worn a Mohican, and he was always one to call out what he saw as hypocrisy. He studied, became an entrepreneur, and wrote a novel. Although he mellowed as he grew older, he continued to have regular brushes with the establishment. From today's vantage point, it seems ridiculous that a tyre wholesaler couldn't advertise on a football shirt. Nowadays, every square of real estate at an Indian Premier League cricket game 
whether that's on a player's shirt or on the perimeter hoardings, contains advertising and so is monetized in one form or another. In the late 1970s, it wasn't like that. Administrators, at least some of them still amateur, saw themselves as men with their hands in the proverbial dike. Later, these same men would become more sophisticated, moving their hands out of the dike and into the till. But that's a story for another day. Back then, it was only they who stood between the Corinthian ethos of the game and the dark barbarian forces of commerce. Dugan spat with the F.A. over Kettering tyres seems so banal today that it's almost laughable, but it was very real at the time. Imagine an IPL franchise or Arsenal football club worrying about what's on a shirt. Now, the only worry is what's not on a shirt. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30 a.m. 